and we should be arguing over things, by the way. You've heard a lot of people say, we, was this like chaotic when mm-hmm. we ultimately got into this? This isn't chaos. This is democracy. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten accustomed to seeing the omnibus uh, spending bills so much that people don't even know what democracy looks like anymore. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth. This is Season 3, Episode 1. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I am joined by... Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Back from being a work-shy lout sitting at home in West Virginia, raising his baby daughter. Um, Your dad, how does it feel? (laughs) You know, um, uh, exhausting. Um, And also, like... I don't know. I'll probably get roasted for this, but it's a lot easier than people made it out to be. Yeah. I think I think you're I not think, like that loser on Twitter that was like, I hate being a dad. Life yeah, sucks so much. I can't smoke weed a, with my buddies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's certainly different. But yeah, everybody lies about how hard it is. I mean, she's two months old now and we've gone through like, you know, from being up with her every, uh, you know, two hours overnight, Um, you know, learning how to feed her regularly take care of her i had literally never changed a uh a, a, a diaper until we had actually i don't think i had i had ever held a baby more than once or twice before we had her and um you know obviously my my wife so it's is, pretty straightforward and simple is what he's saying have yeah some, have some kids yeah have some kids and have a great wife to take care of yeah that's, uh, <laughs> the way i would put it but but we're back uh nick nick had been gone for the past few months but we're going to make an intentional effort to to make sure you get uh, both of us, uh, both of us, as often as possible, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledummer. Um, it's going to be all of your Nick content <laughs> yeah, answered. All, 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 all of those questions, you know, where he cuts in halfway through the episode and is like, um, so like, how does that work? Like, it's yeah. going to be great. Yeah. Um, and, and today, boy, do we have a fantastic episode to start the season with. Um, you know, I, 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 I would have loved to have had, a, you know, a, a great episode for, for the first episode of the season. Uh, we have one of the best episodes we've ever had period and and it may just be a contender for the best because uh you're gonna learn some stuff in this episode today that you haven't seen in the news we had on today uh, a returning guest which uh is sometimes uh, unexpected because usually people aren't that great to have them on again uh but we had on a returning congressman now technically a chairman we had on congressman dan bishop or chairman dan bishop who in addition to being one of those 20 congressmen that you heard about on the news who actually made Kevin McCarthy make some concessions to the rest of the conference to make this 118th Congress more than just sitting around twiddling their thumbs for two years, uh, he is now a member of this select committee on the weaponization of government, and he is the chairman of the subcommittee on oversight in the Department of Homeland Security Committee under Chairman Mark Green. And so he is going to have a full docket, and we talk about all of that. We talk about the secret story of how these 20 actually came to decide that they would, on that fateful day on January 3rd, vote no one at a time through that roll call uh, and uh, what that week's negotiating was like, what they were asking for, what they got, and so much more. We talk about how do we make this church committee real? How do we make it not just another Benghazi 2.0? And we talk about what we're going to do to make immigration law enforced again in this country, what they're going to do with Alejandro Mayorkas, what they're going to do to the TSA. And so much more. It was just fantastic. 
um congressman bishop is is smooth he he is he is really good he's, it's not just the <laughs> accent man he's like he like, knows what he's doing he knows what he's doing he knows what he's saying and it's like not bs it's incredible it's so much fun to interview him uh i can't believe he spent 90 minutes with us in the chair um you you guys are gonna have a fantastic time listening to this through um uh and uh for all the creepy journalists listening uh screw you guys uh, <laughs> it's uh it's 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 just a fantastic episode we're really really uh grateful to the congressman and his staff for helping make it happen to bring him on for for the first episode of the season and we'll go now to congressman dan bishop Congressman, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Glad to be with you, Sorrel. This is the the season premiere, and so we thought we had to bring in someone who who was really doing something interesting. And you know, as you joked right before we got started, uh, I asked you how's the 118th Congress going, and you said uneventful. <laughs> uh, clearly, it it has not been. Uh, you you were one of what have been called uh, the uh, va- you know variously the terrible, the tyrannical, the evil 20 congressmen, grandstanders. Yeah, grandstanders. Um, uh, that that decided maybe we should actually have a conversation about how the House is governed and what the Republican Congress is going to do. And I think uh, what would be a really exciting opportunity for our listeners is to hear the story of, of how that happened. Um, walk us back. However early uh, it makes sense, I actually don't know when these conversations started. When did you start thinking that maybe uh, the first of the year, or the third of the year had to be a little bit more complicated than just a, a coronation? Yeah, it, we began in the House Freedom Caucus discussing the way that that the, the the procedures we use in Congress, the way we go about doing things should change, that there were many opportunities to do that in rules. And we began working on that last summer. And and I know that we had conversations about it probably as early as May or so, because we were trying to uh, figure out how long our process would be to develop rules, ideas that we could suggest and get out there so that freshmen would have an opportunity to consider freshman elects following the in the election would would have an opportunity to consider that issue before we elected leadership which happens the the you know the week after election day uh, now we ended up developing a list of proposed rules changes by about late July August and uh, and we and Michael uh, Cloud from Texas one of the House Freedom Caucus members made a proposal to conference that we entertain actually rules uh, decisions before we elected leadership. And like many many of the issues that we were talking about, the, the process for that was to send that off to Siberia, <laughs> to you know send that recommendation to a committee, and then the committee didn't really meet for till after the election. The only meeting I had with Kevin McCarthy, the leader McCarthy, and with several others during that time, he was really kind of a little miffed that there was a set of proposed rules changes out, and he didn't really want to entertain the substance of them. And we had various people saying that we uh, needed to uh, concentrate on the election, and we didn't need to be measuring the curtains and or the measuring the drapes in the majority's o- or in the speaker's office until we had that job done. But I, we didn't see it that way. But so it was a it was a lengthy conversation. And but we, it was a one way conversation. We no no one else wanted to engage in it with us until the election. And following the election, uh, I had a telephone call with Kevin McCarthy a couple of days after. Actually, it was a Saturday after the Tuesday election, and and he was saying he called to say that uh, when we were having leadership elections in the next week, 
we might spend a little bit of time. In, there weren't many leadership contested elections, so maybe we devote a little bit of time and that was set aside for that to, to discuss a few rules changes. And I said, um, Kevin, I, the the circumstance. There's been a cardinal change in circumstances. You surely re- realize that because. Uh, and your viewers will know or listeners that we uh, anticipated you know, people were hoping for a big red wave. Had there been a big red wave, what happened on, in January wouldn't have occurred. It occurred because there was a there's a small Republican majority. And so a small group of us could at least, re- you know, require that people entertain some ideas that they're content not to think about. They just are. Most folks seem to be satisfied with the status quo. And I don't see how that can be that I haven't been here that long in Congress, but everybody, I mean, the Congress is an institution has an abysmally low approval rating. You can look at our nation's debt. Uh, you can look at the uh, circumstances in our society or, or the uh, uh, in inflation, whatever you want to pick. And you can see that Congress has not been doing a good job. And if an institution's failing, you don't keep doing the same thing in the same way and expect a different result. So that Saturday after the election, uh, we began, I began with Kevin a conversation and many others began at roughly the same time. And it resulted in really just almost innumerable meetings, conversations, meetings of the entire conference, meetings of select groups cutting across the ideological spectrum within the Republican conference, uh, but not enough progress, not fast enough. We did get through a lot of procedural changes, rules changes, but what was most concerning to me as we entered, as we got near uh, January 3, the convening of the 118th Congress, was that there was no legislative policy strategy. There had been the commitment to America that uh, Leader McCarthy, uh, you know, uh, developed for purposes of campaigning, but it was it was vague. Sign of kind of poll tested language. Uh, Matt Gates called it the palm card for America, famously, <laughs> and and I think that's right. I mean, it had aspirational ideas, but it didn't talk about which battles are we going to go to the mat for in this Congress. Not just to say, well, you know, we're going to pass a lot of messaging bills. I hope you'll be content with us and elect us again. No, it, when there's divided government, I think it's often a question of will. Who's going to prevail on key issues? And we were, I wanted to see, that's what I most feared having from Kevin. And I didn't, you know, I I didn't see him coming forward with that kind of message. And I believe we were going to drift into this Congress. Mm -hmm. And that would be a a critical loss for the American people Mm -hmm. and the Republican Party. So tell me a little bit about the, I guess it would have been the month of November into December. There was a series of four or five Congress uh, men and women that decided to come out and explicitly say they will not vote for Kevin McCarthy. You weren't among them. That's correct. Um, uh, What was the the strategy? Was that all coordinated? Were people sort of doing their own thing? What was sort of the strategy and mindset behind that? Because the interesting thing was, was that with with five no's, it was supposed to be a foregone conclusion. If if there's five people saying no, Kevin McCarthy cannot be speaker. Tell me that story. Uh, First thing to say is enormous kudos to those five. Uh, It was a very brave thing to do. They were pounded on from the beginning. I was spared that because I didn't take that step. Um, their courage made it possible for those that the group that turned out to be 20 ultimately to uh, get 
going to get to get prepared. Um, we actually had disagreements over that point, though, in the inception. Uh, there, there were those, and one, or one in particular, I can think of off the top of my head, I don't want to name him because I'm not sure it was the first person out, but who was devoted to that idea. I'm not voting for Kevin McCarthy under any circumstance ever. He's the wrong person to lead the conference. And uh, I respected that point of view, but I also recognized with the numbers that we had in comparison to the entire conference, I wasn't sure that it would just be possible to get there. I And, and frankly, uh, those divisions, so we had those kind of fractures, uh, although we worked around them and, and managed to stay together in, a, in an extraordinary, I'm very proud of the work that we all did together. But at the very tail end, it was those same five, really, or six. There was one who made, made it six who was also in that camp but did not say so publicly. Uh, but at the very end, that that same division ultimately reemerged, and uh, I, I when as I say, we had disagreements over that from the inception. I believed that it was implausible to be. I mean, so if as you say, if five or six were enough, those five or six did, could still have done it. But there is, I mean, that you know, pressure is real. I think in, I think courage is in short supply and. Uh, up here, and I'd, I'd like to see more of it. And I'm pleased with the courage that was shown by the 20, and certainly by those five or six. But when it comes down to that last night's events, mm-hmm. uh, and the way you see the the dialogue kind of dis, de, uh, uh, deteriorate to the to the point of almost uh, kind of a, an embarrassing set of events for the Congress, for the Republican conference, I believe. Uh, you don't want to get to, to that point, mm-hmm. and and it's not tenable. Mm-hmm. I think there shouldn't have just been twenty. I think there should have been thirty or fifty mm-hmm. or seventy-five or a hundred. So I think there's a lot of introspection to be done across the conference about what we are willing to do mm-hmm. to make change up here. Because as to two hundred, the answer is not much. Mm-hmm. But um, but that so those divisions did exist. Uh, but again, I, my hat's off to the to the five or six. Uh, notwithstanding that, I didn't think that was exactly the position to be in. Their courage speaks for itself. So, um, one of the interesting elements of of that was that even when there were more no votes than Kevin McCarthy could afford, the message and the narrative in the media, and that was telegraphed from his office and and across um, uh, uh, the Republican Party and mainstream media, was it's still going to be Kevin. That it's going to be fine. They're not actually going to um, uh, vote no. And so the assumption when I see something like that is that they believe that these people would eventually succumb to pressure mm-hmm. between those days and January 3rd. What did that pressure look like? Um, what 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 does the establishment do when you say, I'd like a change? The, the <laughs> it, it was it's an interesting thing to watch if you go back again to the pre uh january all that that period of time from election day all these conversations going on including conference uh meetings meetings of the entire conference some of those were were focused basically on rules changes and like the first one that was had everything suggested was just roundly destroyed you know just just completely voted down and then there was one where a number of things were taken, and it was it was all kind of it appeared to be choreographed at times, and I still can't quite explain that, uh, but I, I will say it was it was palpable, and 
so so I you know there does people say the the uh, uniparty or Washington the way Washington runs things there are some signs to me that that it is it's all it's quite managed mm-hmm. and um, I, I don't really fully understand why uh, people who are elected independently by three quarters of a million Americans apiece would ever want to sort of participate in something that's contrived or managed in mm-hmm. that way. How much was, how much was, and I can't say for sure, but lots of times it seemed like it. And it always seemed to be a choreographed mm-hmm. to kind of give an overall theme. The worst moment, I think, in the course of the thing was the meeting of the conference that we had on the morning of January 3rd. Uh, it was a mob scene. It was, uh, and and Leader McCarthy, he's apologized for his conduct there. Uh, others have, I think we all mutually ought to be prepared to own our own worst parts of what happened, but that was, that was a mob. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, what we're here, every, every, it's, it's, it's always been odd to me too. And I've talked about this probably before that there is there, the Democratic Party, there's not an, there's not a mirror. It's not a, it's not a symmetrical picture between the Democrat and Republican Party in, in Congress. The Democratic Party does leftist things. They, they move the ball. Their leadership is intentional about doing that. They do not protect the Henry Cuellars of the Democratic Con- Conference, the handful of moderates. Those moderates are on board for just about 100% of their votes. On the Republican Conference side, that's not how it has worked. In fact, the conservatives, we were out there trying to push to make something like that happen or make it work more like that. We're really accomplishing conservative things. But what really happens is they tailor or they they uh, they uh, attempt to accommodate most significantly those who are the farthest to the left in the Republican conference, so-called majority makers, people who are in so-called swing seats. And 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 all of the effort of the and that seems to be long standing and we've become accustomed mm-hmm. to it so whenever re- conservatives in the republican conference try to push or take or say look my vote no one owns my voting card except for me mm-hmm. if you need my vote to elect a speaker then there, we're going to have to do some things to see to it that mm-hmm. conditions of that vote are met and uh, the vitriol that has that comes back mm-hmm. on that it's it's a uh, it's almost unexplainable, mm-hmm. um, and but I but I would say uh, that moment that that mm-hmm. um, a mob scene of a conference meeting right before we went on the floor, I understand some of it. And emotions were high, and people, uh, including the leader, had uh, hoped that they would be able to get it dealt with. But I don't ever expect I, I shouldn't. We should never see a Republican <laughs> conference meeting conducted in that way ever again. It's amazing. Uh, seems like we have 150 or so swing districts. <laughs> Something like that. Doesn't it yeah. seem like that? Um, you know, you've mentioned these uh, uh, rule changes and procedural things a, co- a couple times. And I think, you know, there are probably a lot of people who don't know exactly what kinds of conversations were taking place about particular rules. Could you walk us through and and maybe not even just what you were thinking, but what some of the other members uh, in the conference were putting forward right. in terms of rule changes. You know, there, there are a lot. And uh, How unreasonable uh, were you being? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, many of these were, were so, like, and, and that isn't a good, a good point, how unreasonable were you being? Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them were really, prof- you know, uh, 
nothing to him. One, here's an example. Uh, when Liz Cheney needed to be removed as as a, as a chairman of the Republican conference, um, you know, I made that motion. And it, it was, I mean, it, it, you, you no matter how many members, there were 62 or something that ultimately voted in favor of that. But we had to go through sort of, I mean, essentially Kevin McCarthy had to uh, voluntarily let that come before conference of his own will. The rules didn't allow for it. It just, as I said, made in reference to Michael Cloud earlier, no no number of members can bring anything up and make sure conference considers it or deals with it unless the leadership decides to. Many of us have been in state legislatures. We'd sit in caucus meetings there with our party, and anybody could bring up anything and mm-hmm. have it dealt with by the by the caucus in due course. And so that was one that I had proposed. That first meeting, I said, when they had the conference meeting, the first one was sort of choreographed to be, um, uh, you know, refuse everything. They, they kind of just trampled that idea. It later got done. But the idea was if you had 25 percent of the Republican members that can bring up an issue in conference, it can be dealt with immediately. You don't have to send it off to a committee to be heard from maybe or maybe not later on. Minor example. Better, more significant examples uh, and, and quicker described. Uh, single subject and germaneness. So that we we see how Congress operates by this, like that $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill at the end of the year. Uh, that's that's all Congress ever does, really, is those massive bills with you know innumerable subjects combined into thousands and thousands of pages dropped out there and they pass. And they're really, the decisions are being made by somebody in the back room. There are mm-hmm. five or six people, maybe making the decisions and a lot a lot of small people making their sending their requests in but the, it gets assembled by a handful of people it shouldn't work that way so morgan griffith who is not with us as among the 20 but is a member of house freedom caucus he was instrumental in developing the uh unprecedented rule for the united states house of representatives that will have single subjects in bills and the germaneness rule if there's to be an amendment or a change to that bill the amendment must be must be germane must relate to that single subject you know, every rule can be waived is the problem. So if if uh, it, th- that should be a defense against bills like these massive omnibuses. But uh, but as I say, the reason it was con- concerning to me to make sure we had commitments to specific policies, substantive policies that were on that when Kevin McCarthy's, you know, in his head is must accomplish was because I know that every rule can be waived. Uh, there are a lot more. Uh, uh, in the nature of, of rules changes uh, of all kinds, you know, which bills can come up on suspension of the rules, how big can they be without uh, having a, vo- uh, uh, a, um, a, uh, a vote of the individual members, division of the House. Uh, and they, they kind of, there's it's an ex- a sort of a laundry list, so they go on from there. I think the most important ones are, uh, are the, um, the, uh, the, single subject and germaneness rules and the positive and the potential that that brings if we stick with it uh, to uh, to see to it we get our bills uh, whittled down. I guess there's one other that's worth mentioning, and that is a rules change that would make in order. A lot of times everything goes through the rules committee. It's like the funnel through which all legislation goes to get to the house, to the floor. And as Tom Cole, who's now chairman of the rules committee, was ranking member before Oklahoma, described it in one of the conversations it's really sort of an anti-rules committee because there's a set of rules but every bill that goes to the floor goes under a special rule Mm -hmm. another thing i never saw as a state legislator Mm -hmm. everything went through rules committees sort of uh, managed the flow of legislation but you didn't go to the floor 
and have every bill considered under a change of the rules. So you can't offer any amendments. Everything's a closed rule. Um, one change made there is it will, it, it, and there's still some flexibility in it, but the Rules Committee should consider it to be in order, not, you know, if if there's an amendment to be offered by a member on an appropriations bill that would reduce spending. All those amendments get to be considered on the floor. Um, and that, and that you know, one reason those the special rules exist and the limitations on amendments is to let business get done in this large parliamentary body with some some nature of dispatch. But the, what it has resulted in is it's, it looks more and more like uh, President Xi's Politburo than it does <laughs> an American deliberative body yeah. because it's just sort of like ceremonial votes. They mm-hmm. whatever comes through rules and then everything mm-hmm. else is kind of canceled and or uh, made out of order and and you just have essentially ceremonial votes on the floor. Um, I mean, I'm not they're more than ceremonial, but but it but it's not it doesn't lead, lend itself to the participation that should be going on. And we should be arguing over things, by the way. For a lot of people say, was this like chaotic when Mm -hmm. we ultimately got into this? This isn't chaos. This is democracy. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten accustomed to seeing the omnibus uh, spending bills so much that people don't even know what democracy looks like anymore. Yeah. So tell me about that a little bit, because I I think that that is one of the biggest disconnects between D.C. culture and, and what normal people think about when they think of how legislative body works is that. For whatever reason, members of Congress uh, don't want the negotiation to happen in public. Now, I could be uncharitable for all the reasons um, why why that might be the case, but I- I'm curious, wh- what's the steel man case for why they 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 want that to be the case? Like, what wh- wh- is there any good reasons why why they'd prefer for these things to happen, you know, behind the scenes? Well, I mean, you you know, there's a I just made reference to. Uh, likening the, what happens in the United States Congress to what happens in the Chinese Politburo. And I only mean that by way of sort of trying to make a point. But but there, that there is something about that ceremony or giving the appearance of, of success seems to be more important sometimes than actual success. Mm. Uh, I think it's the same sort of the, the, you know, telegraphing messages to the voters. We're with you. And yet holding back or not really getting there when the when the rubber's on you know, meets the road. Mm-hmm. So if you think all those twenty something votes to repeal Obamacare, but when the real vote that mattered came along, they couldn't get it done. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's an artificiality there, and and you know I got to say, um, in the first couple of days when we were extending the deliberations over the election of the speaker, uh, the reaction from the from uh, the public was not positive mm-hmm. i mean there was uh, condemn- condemnation raining down on our office back in the district and here uh, people were upset about it they know they voted they the republicans barely won they want to see smooth operating everything go like glass and i think that it almost uh, supplants um the the what they also know mm-hmm. Which is they've had this experience over and over again, where uh, they see cosmetic things being said or done that don't ultimately follow through and become real. Mm-hmm. Um, if I stay here not one more minute in Congress, um, I am not going to engage in cosmetic and lying to mm-hmm. the people. It's a form of lying to the people. The, the Obamacare example is so interesting, right? Because um, you know you could tell a story. I think it carries a lot of water where. It was all those fake smooth votes that 
gave the appearance of unanimity in the conference that led to a world where there was no muscle memory for what the actual negotiating um, to get to a place where, you know, it was a Dean Heller and John McCain at the time could have actually voted for the repeal. Right. And so it's it's almost like a it's it's like dysfunctional families who don't talk through their issues and eventually one day just boils over and, you know, someone screams and shuts, slams the door behind them and leaves like that. It actually has consequences for your ability to govern how you operate when there isn't really a formal upshot. You weren't going to repeal Obamacare under Obama, but it was important to go through not just the motions, but actual um, substantive discussions in public because that would train everyone up to be able to do it for real. That is extraordinarily insightful. That's exactly right. Uh, we have, and I would say, um, uh, one thing about this, that event, the, the extended speaker deliberation in January, the first two weeks of uh, first week of January, uh, and what led up to it, it actually opened up conversations across conference for me and for those of us in the uh, the twenty that had never occurred before. So I, we spent four or five hours, a group of us, with members of the Tuesday group, which is a one of the moderate. Um, uh, factions within the Republican conference. Uh, we had ultimately there at the end, they were, we were uh, negotiating detailed agreement provisions with representatives of uh, McCarthy. And those conversations are deeper and more extensive. And I got to know people better than I had before uh, who were not. And, and, and I will say, I mean, I, as a member of the Freedom Caucus, I spend probably more meeting time with members of the Freedom Caucus than I do with other members across the conference, and some may just not want to, but there are people who are, and, and there's some connections that I formed. I think of one in my mind right now, John Curtis of Utah, for in my case, uh, just sort of uh, connected in the conversations we were having over that, over the course of the run-up mm -hmm. to January 3rd, and mm -hmm. certainly the uh, that week of January 3rd. Mm -hmm. So going back to the timeline on this, um, I believe because Congressman Biggs had said before the vote that he was going to vote no, correct? So were you the first person alphabetically who was not a publicly committed no to be in the roll call? Um, yes, I suppose that's true. Although we did release yeah. a statement by Twitter uh, either that morning mm -hmm. or the evening before mm -hmm. to say that uh, I would not be voting for yeah. that no, McCarthy's not the person, to, right person to lead the conference. Yeah. So, yeah, but as, as it came to pass, mm -hmm. it was uh, – I, I had thought about that a good bit because mm -hmm. I had always heard, you know, your your the name of the role will be called, and so whoever's early, these things have been attempted before, mm -hmm. and they and ours lasted a lot mm -hmm. more than uh, previous attempts, and uh, it, but uh, and it, and it does make a difference, I think, who goes first. I will tell you that in the moment, it didn't bother me a bit. <laughs> I just it's just not my. I mean, once I've decided to do something. Yeah. Uh, I don't really spend much time with uh, uh, fretting or wringing hands mm -hmm. over it. I just decide. I mean, mm -hmm. I, now I don't. I don't want to be too sound like I'm too dogmatic about it because with my staff and, and close folks, uh, you know, I worked it over a lot mm -hmm. uh, over the several over the month or two leading up to that time. But once I'd gotten there and I knew pretty much where we were going to be. I didn't. It, it, I'm not intimidated at that point. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you can imagine a world where you know, suppose either Congressman Biggs or yourself or both had decided for whatever reason to vote for McCarthy. The entire thing could have 
collapsed it could have like broken the resolve of the entire 20 i mean did you know did you guys know before that first vote a few minutes before that first vote how many no votes you would actually end up with we did I, and and i will say this also that was uh, a lot of people sort of think now uh, there were 20 well uh, I didn't know there was going to be 20. I mean, I, I had reason to believe, and there were some. I will say that as we were working very intently to see if we could get everything resolved before we got to January 3rd, that last several days, um, I didn't. I mean, I think Scott Perry, who's uh, uh, chairman of the Freedom Caucus, member from Pennsylvania, fantastic guy, and kept, you know, he kept the army together as this or platoon, whatever we were. But I think he had a better handle on it, and I sort of tried. I didn't want. I didn't want to know exactly who uh, was where mm-hmm. within a certain range, uh, and so I didn't realize until about an evening or two before that we had. I thought it was going to be about seventeen, mm-hmm. and I don't think we went on the floor with twenty. I mean, we had eighteen something like that, and then we picked up a couple. But uh, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, I think one of the ones that came out of nowhere for me was a freshman Keith Self from Texas. Oh yeah. That's people, my parents' district. <laughs> people need to get to know yeah. Keith Self. Yeah. He is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he had not been involved in all of these conversations, mm-hmm. at least uh, in, a, in an organized group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I think that made Byron Donald's number 20. And Byron mm-hmm. had been talking with us. Add some some others had who ultimately did not go with us mm-hmm. uh, throughout. Uh, but, you know, Byron's a tremendous figure. And, and I think he's a, he's a young man, uh, fantastic, bright uh, prospects now um, uh, Kevin McCarthy's appointment to the steering committee mm-hmm. of the Republican conference steering committee and um, I think that speaks well of Kevin and speaks well of Byron so uh, one of the fun parts uh, for people who, who aren't in the house um, uh, over the last few or over that week was that um, because there was no speaker. Um, the C-SPAN cameras were actually able to sort of pan mm. over, and we were able to see all these funny interactions. And there were many memes that came out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but stuff. I'm but I'm sure we only have a small slice of what it was actually like. So that first vote happens. What and and it's clear that that no, there there are 20 members that will not vote for Kevin McCarthy, and this will be sort of unprecedented in recent history. Uh, what was that like? That environment on the floor. Um. You know, and there are different. It, it had ebbed and flowed over the period of time, and some of it, I will tell you, my mind and my memories are dominated by what happened Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, mm-hmm. as we began moving in the direction of a possible agreement. And there, but I, you know, I would say um, uh, that first day there were some conversations going on in the back. I talked a lot with Patrick McHenry, who was an intermediary sort of on behalf of Kevin. There were various, uh, you know, that uh, no one. Uh, I mean, one of the things people would or media would always say is, "What's the end game? What? How do you? What's going to end?" And to the same point, we were sort of discussing earlier about people need to be more comfortable with the with the disagreements and the contention that is necessary to really have genuine democracy and uh, do things that are not artificial. By the same token, um, not knowing how a democratic process is going to conclude is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I almost that, definitional. It, 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 it would it be is a democratic process if you know it's how it's going to end. It is definitional. So if you believe in it, you got to be comfortable with the level of that. Yeah. But the media, of course, does chaos and yeah. dysfunction. Yeah. They'd Let have to rewrite you, their articles about I mean, how Kevin McCarthy uh, became speaker. Imagine if that's how all that work involved. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, They had filed two months ago. They were ready to go. <laughs> for sure. 
but but you know if they uh it, it why not just develop uh, some you know what's dysfunction is the omnibus the 1.7 trillion dollar omnibus that gets decided by a handful of people and rammed through i think the i read about that night. on twitter i think you had a thread about it <laughs> probably yeah, that's why we did have a thread on that and actually a lot yeah. of uh, in case the listeners didn't the see kudos it. go to a fantastic staff which I've, <laughs> uh, uh, just really yeah. fine yeah. young people yeah this was one of the most i think viewed things about a piece of legislation ever <laughs> like uh, elon musk commented on it like four times it, it, was, it, was, it was quite an impressive it was viral <laughs> because it was substantive it was interesting yeah. they found the abuses that was funny mm-hmm. and uh it was just it right that and that hit frankly i you know i don't think there are coincidences that that hit and and went kind of viral and sort of what doubled our twitter followers and so forth mm. uh about a week before mm-hmm. or two weeks Two weeks before, two or three weeks before, we had this occur on the floor. So, but but that first day, you know, there were there were rumors circulating about uh, who might be interested in being speaker, how long it might take for uh, before McCarthy might give up the ghost, or people might go to him and tell him. Was, so there was a lot of speculation. I'm not sure uh, as much light as heat in the first on Tuesday, the third. Um, Wednesday was an interesting day. Uh, that was the day that we adjourned, or we we there was a we agreed to support a motion to adjourn about three o'clock, and mm. until eight p.m. There were a number of conversations that occurred. Then I actually was out of them. It's sort of funny. They always tell you you have to communicate, and so that the media had descended, and I did a lot of media interviews, and I wrapped some up about five thirty. I knew there were some negotiations going on, and um, I didn't, but I did not go insert myself into them. Um, we then had a, a meeting at about ultimately about seven twenty-five before returning to the floor at eight, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was a little bit of a that was a little bit of a misstep in our process because sort of some incomplete negotiated terms were sort of dumped on the group. You know, we had some very dramatic splits about what we should do as to the eight o'clock return to the floor, whether we should adjourn. It was about that same time that Club for Growth came out publicly and announced that they had reached an agreement with a congressional leadership fund over how you know that that the, the leadership would not play in primaries mm-hmm. open primaries was that something really important to you yeah yes it's a, i think it's a very important issue i had not spent personally much time mm-hmm. over it but the the announcement of an agreement was was a stunning surprise mm-hmm. to those of us who were contending we we had not been kept abreast. We did not know that was going to happen. One at a convenient time, right? I mean, like right a, before you go back to it was a, vote. It, and, and right at the same time, yeah. this, we were sort of in 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 a had some uh, very difficult challenge for the twenty of us about what exactly to do right then tactically concerning the possibility of continuing to negotiate an agreement or continuing to have votes, and that was a very challenging evening. I went home that evening Wednesday with the um, not sure what how we were going to proceed thursday turned around though we we uh, uh, continued negotiations the negotiating process got very specific and and some more details and it went the right direction and uh, i was then heartened so there was this kind of uneven process some moments of despair some some moments where you go i think this thing could end up in a pretty good place yeah ultimately it became clear uh by friday certainly friday fairly early that we had the makings of an agreement that would satisfy really 
I mean, I, you know, there's still a question about whether who your top choice is for speaker, but we had we completed issues on the on uh, rules. Most of that had already been agreed to. There was the speaker had conceded that they would restore the motion to vacate the chairs that had it existed all the way until Nancy Pelosi changed it. So that's rules, you know. Mm-hmm. There we had developed a very significant set of policy, legislative policy strategy agreements. Fiscal restraint, limiting fiscal 2024 spending to the uh, um, discretionary spending to the 2022 levels, which, you know, that's going to be interesting and tough. But that was the commitment made that we would not support a debt limit increase until there's bicameral agreement on that spending objective. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some other details about spending priorities. I mean, a debt prioritization plan. Conservative representation on key committees, uh, appropriations and rules and things like that. And ultimately, uh, we had also worked through the uh, the question of the select subcommittee on the weaponization of federal government. I personally was deeply involved in the negotiation to make sure that that committee that Jim Jordan will run, a subcommittee, it's going to be under judiciary, which he's the chairman of, and he'll be running it as the subcommittee chairman as well. But it was critical to me to ensure that that committee had all of the authority that it needed to dig deeply into the deep state. Mm-hmm. And so those were the pieces. And then the last part that comes to mind in the agreement was there was an agreement to put several specific bills on the floor for a vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, the term limits bill, the fair tax, uh, the Texas border plan, and I believe there's one more, but those were, uh, you know, that was the key of it. And it, it became clear that that was going to come together and uh, and as it did Friday evening, we 14, I guess, or 15 of us changed our vote. And then ultimately we had that last end game play out. How does the 118th look different? And obviously this is something you can't, you know, claim credit for. But uh, looking back at what, you know, the agenda or what the committees would have looked like or whatever, if you had had if Republicans had had a much larger majority What's kind of the difference in in outcome versus what we got? For me, I, and you know, I think about what what folks may think of this at, back home. Um, by the way, I, and before I answer that question, let me just say my impression is that as much condemnation as I got the first couple of days of that exercise, once it became clear the agreement that we had reached and that you know uh, the scope and and fullness of that. Uh, the the amount of um, uh, support that I've received personally has just been unbelievable. I was at a community barbecue and serving in the line and people coming through and just I, I was surprised that many people knew who I was, I was <laughs> much less were following this event and had an opinion about it. So I think that's come out to be uh, a, a good thing. Now, I've lost track of it, but I, I wanted to say that first, Nick. What was your question again? Um, how the 118th. Um, looks different, you know, with a smaller majority yeah, 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 versus yeah, yeah. what it would have been. If, if you had bigger, and that's what I was going to say. So, having gotten to the point we've come to, it is interesting to be able to say with great cert- certitude, as I do, not one change would have occurred except for the twenty, except for that small group, the small margin five, and and the twenty people who are prepared to stand up. Mm-hmm. Not one rule change, not not being able to discuss things and bring issues up before the conference, not single subject, not germaneness, not 
uh, putting uh, amendments on the floor that will reduce, you know, spending bills going forward, not uh, a commitment to go to the mat on uh, spending on particular spending re- restraint objectives, uh, not a broader uh, community, you know, participation in committees across Congress. And I think this is it's, it's really an oxymoron or, or counterintuitive. Most Republican voters would think the bigger the Republican majority, the better. And I, I suppose it's a question of whether they believe the things that I've we've described are uh, is something that all Republicans would consider salutary or better. I think they would. One thing that's so interesting is there's been a whole bunch of people in the conference saying how great the rules are, rules changes are mm. that have been made. And how, how good it is that we've done these things because they're square, they're right in the heart mm-hmm. of what Republican pol- you know, platform or, or policy is about. And yet not one piece of it would have, would have occurred mm-hmm. because if you had the bigger you know, swath of seats, plenty of people to get the speaker elected, he could make you know, do the things he had to do for whatever number that might ask for, uh, ask for something in exchange. But – most people would be content to just sort of coast on through and and trust the fact that the system works. But mm-hmm. you know, Mr. McCarthy's been in leadership here for fourteen years. I was watched a video that I came across when he spoke to Tea Party Republicans in Bakersfield, California, in 2011, and he said then that the three biggest challenges facing America are are debt, China, and education. <laughs> he says that same thing now. And over that ensuing uh, 11, you know, what was it? How many years since then? This 2011, this 2023, so 12 years since then. He had been in leadership just a little while then. Those, all, Each one of those things has gotten worse, not better. And so you have to – it's really not a question of Kevin McCarthy. But whatever's happening here has not turned the ship in the, in the right direction. It's still sailing in the wrong direction. So I subscribe to the idea that that means something should change. And um, how radical. (laughs) I know exactly. I'm sure they're going to probably run me out of town. I I will say I do think the rest of this Congress, how it plays out, it also is salutary for that, that we had this at the front end. I don't think rather than have speculation every week or two about when people are going to get. Now, we may still see problems. I don't know. Uh, but I think by virtue of having a substantial amount of agreement about what we're going to pursue um, and how we're going to, going to go about it, and, and, and the committees have, are emerging, and they are indeed, the, I've seen, we're satisfied that members of House Freedom Caucus and other conservatives are being represented on committees. I think that will result in the management of the 118th Congress uh, and the Republican Conference in a way that is um, – is better and keeps us together. And so I think it worked out pretty well. There's an element to this fight that that I can't stop thinking about, which is this was a rebellion of freshmen, sophomores, and juniors. I mean, it was, I think I think I did the math on this, it was something like 16 or 17 out of the 20 were, have been here for three terms or fewer. I mean, t- t- technically, like, if you, two, two terms or fewer. I mean, if you don't even count the start of the new Congress as a term, like people who had, like yourself who had been there for one full term do full terms. Think about someone like Chip Roy who had mm-hmm. been there since 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone like yourself who's been here since since about 2020. Someone like, um, you know, um, uh, Matt Rosendale who's relatively new, et cetera, et cetera. Um, young members. And then the fact that 
on top of these young members, you had five newly elected freshmen, two of which I don't think anyone expected. Like Eli Crane and Keith Self, everyone expected would be good members, but like no one expected that they would step out in this way. Um, and then Anna Paulina Luna, Andy Ogles, and um, and uh, Josh Burkeen. Josh Burkeen. Um, that feels like a sea change. I mean, you experienced this a little bit because in your very first term, you decided to go after the third rail of American politics, which is questioning our foreign policy establishment. So you were out there already. Like, has the script on what it means to be a new member of Congress or a young member of Congress changed completely? That's a great question, Saurav, and it has a it goes deeper than I had spent much time thinking about. I, as I said. Um, I believe special credit is due to the five who started. That's uh, and, and they're all in the category you described. Uh, but those, but that sixth one who is not public, but was not McCarthy, and the other freshman. He was a freshman, and, and the other freshman, the ones you name. Um, I'm so proud of them. I just they, they're extraordinary. Um, it's a great question. I think you've seen. You know, you've seen these. Republican Study Committee emerged, you know, a couple decades ago, and then it was kind of co-opted. House Freedom Caucus uh, developed in 2015, I guess. I think that's right. And uh, and it has had, you know, right now I'd say we've got a challenge ahead for us because we've got roughly half of us didn't participate in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and but uh, you know that group of 20 and it, it was. It was really it's it, it is you cannot deny that some things that we accomplished or the things that we did, whether you call them accomplishments or not, were historic. I mean, this that amount of time, that number of ballots to mm-hmm. elect a speaker has not occurred since the Civil War, since before the Civil War, yeah. 1856, when now we had like 137 ballots. Mm-hmm. So it's not even close. But the 1923. Um, so 220, 230. 200 2238 they're going to be saying since 2022 we have never since 2023 we've never had this yeah, many ballots that's know? right yeah and uh but in, but the 2023 last rebellion if it were or last issue was the um progressive republicans uh, bob lafollette and others out of wisconsin and all and and they've held for about five ballots or something like that mm-hmm. uh, in order to get some rules changes uh, i also think the the change to the rules committee the change to the complexion of the rules committee is something that uh, it, it will it marks a new era in in Congress's uh, and we've had these things change from time to time over the course mm-hmm. of, of history, but this it's a that's an historic change. The um, the germaneness and, and a single subject approach and see if it does that's n- novel. Uh, these things are are new. It's it's a real it is a real departure in many ways, and um, and I have great hope for it. Whether it portends something that is changing in the election of members, I don't know. Um, I do think for that purpose, the fact that there is this supposed agreement that uh, CLF will not uh, play in open primaries using the power of leadership and the draw for funds that that represents in order to beat conservatives and try to elect members who are not conservative, which perpetuates exactly the kind of status quo that I've decried. But um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful uh, that that what you're what you've seen is maybe a turn that you know, the Tea Party certainly uh, 
that movement tried to bring members who would actually say enough where it's time to change, but it didn't really, it didn't really make them, it didn't really make things change enough in Washington. It got Republicans elected, but you know, you saw Boehner and then Ryan, it didn't get us where we needed to be. Uh, maybe now we're, we're seeing enough members elected that people, you know, we, we know that the, it's too late to do anything other than change. If we don't change, the country's not going to make it. So one of the changes that you fought most intensely for throughout this process, I think it's fair to say that if, if you hadn't put as you know our flag in the ground, it wouldn't have happened, uh, was this select committee on the weaponization of government. It's interesting because it plays into something that we've admired um, that uh, you on for, for quite some time now, which is your more circumspect approach on foreign policy and the American security state. To, tell me, wh- why did you think this committee had to exist? What, what 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 events in the news experiences you've had told you that we needed this in the new Congress? Uh, as a, a member of the public, I watched in you know as it developed the Russia Gate controversy from the from the January 2017 Intel community uh, assessment that gave that gave credence to the Steele dossier through the. Uh, through the briefing of the president, the BuzzFeed release, the um, all the machinations that led thereafter to uh, uh, Jeff Sessions being recused uh, on ridiculous grounds, in my view, the appointment of a special counsel, the Robert Mueller, the uh, the the you know the seventeen angry Democrats, the everything that's happened, that that and some of which you didn't know at the time, Igor Danchenko, the primary subsource. Uh, while they knew he was a liar, they made him a, uh, an FBI informant in March of 2017 and kept in that status till October of 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Alpha Bank, uh, so all of it, it was a, a massive, just like President Trump said, it was a massive hoax. Watching our institutions do that, the department's, Department of Justice and its FBI um, were, I think, sort of an indelible mark for me. I observed it casually. I eventually came to learn a fair amount of detail about it and all the aftermath. Um, but that was that was the first thing that sort of got me fundamentally changing my view about federal law enforcement. And then serving on the Judiciary Committee, I've had a chance to see you know, that that's a very that's sort of a specific even as many as things as I just articulated. They're all about that Russia hoax. Mm-hmm. But then you see the stuff just exploding everywhere you see uh, an apparent an obvious double standard uh, politicized justice uh, people who riot if they're antifa they 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 get released from jail if they they uh, if they join the riots on january 6th thousands are prosecuted and people who are just in the wrong place and did virtually nothing have their lives destroyed um you know, it goes on and on. But I mean, when you get into the question, when you start seeing things while wow, I'm sitting in judiciary of the, of the attorney general writing the memo to target parents because they didn't like how parents were mouthing off to school boards and uh, and then the Twitter files I mean, to make it recent, the Twitter files are released and you see and you go dig into the bottom of that. The foreign influence task force at the FBI sounds like something we definitely want to have a foreign <laughs> influence task force. But when you go look at the website. Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, created this thing from whole cloth in 2017. And what is it doing? It's going to Twitter and telling them, and just because we know about Twitter because Elon Musk has disclosed it, but, you know, there's a whole, Facebook and everybody else, we don't yet know what they've done there. 
but they're actually engaging. They got special assistant special agents in charge who are going out and engaging and telling these people, we don't think that should be out in the public discussion. What? By what? When did they imagine that their role as federal law enforcement is to regulate the American discourse? That's insane. And what I think it's like being the frog in the pot, but they sudden, suddenly your attention has been captured. And mine, so when you go back and look at historic analogs, that's what I want to do. Go back and say, wait a minute, this has gone wrong. When, when have we had seen something like this? And you go back to Frank Church, liberal Democrat senator from Idaho in 1975, after Seymour Hersh had uh, written uh, in the New York Times about foreign covert actions that had not that had no clear authorization where they were uh, committing uh, you know assassination plots and FBI co-intel pro and MK ultra and these things abuses that had gone on before and you say hmm that that uh, there are, that was a moment when they recognized something had gone badly wrong it was precipitated maybe by the resignation of Richard Nixon and all the things associated with that but it was a moment when you recognized Congress recognized something's got to change. And my view is we're in worse shape now than we were then by some distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have just recently discovered that in 1981, there was a Senate Select Committee on FBI undercover operations. Uh, so another point, I mean, we many of these things are undercover operations or confidential investigation. But, you know, the, the, the Whitmer kidnapping plot was another maybe – you know, maybe that's defensible by the FBI, but I don't know. I mean, it's just such an extravagant hmm. application of resources to suck in people who may have been malignant people, but they're people just living on the margins of life with no capacities of their own to go engage in something where they might go kidnap the Michigan governor. That whole idea only existed because the FBI plowed resources into making it possible. That is a specific type of use of an undercover operation that they recognized in 1981 was not what should happen. And uh, Senator Republican, liberal Republican Senator Charles Mathias of Maryland, who headed that select committee, proposed a bill in the next Congress to uh, codify and modify the law of entrapment, uh, coming exactly out of that sort of thing. So I'm always comforted to go back and look for a, an analog in the past where uh, the United States Congress has recognized that there's a, there's a problem that needs to be tended to. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to get as informed about those prior attempts as possible. What satisfied them? Why did they not go far uh, farther than they did? And I think, and I have thought, and I've worked really hard to see to it that there's authority to dig into there's authority to set right the relationship between the United States Congress and the bureaucracy. The United States Congress makes laws. We're all elected, three-quarters of a million people at a pop, and we come together to make laws. We've been talking about how we make laws in the Congress and trying to fix that and make that work better. Now this is the rest of the governmental problem, which is Chris Ray doesn't think we're relevant. He doesn't think Congress matters. He's sitting atop the FBI it has a budget of $11.5 billion, just got another half billion from our friends in the Senate, including 18 Republicans in that in that omnibus, and he believes yeah. um, that he can do anything he wants to, sort of a potentate. 
well, I don't believe that's right. And I don't think he can listen. I don't think he should be collecting bulk data or the NSA. They ought to be collecting bulk data on Americans. I don't think their contractors ought to be running unlimited searches without authorization on those databases about Americans. I don't think uh, people ought to be targeted for going to uh, mouth off to their school board. And I don't think uh, the FBI needs to decide what we say in our society, in our public discourse. So Jim Jordan, I have a lot of trust in Jim Jordan. Thomas Massey and I are both on that committee. Some other great members are. Um, I intend to dig harder than I've dug on anything else in my life to see to it that we get to the bottom of some of this stuff and show it to the American people. That doesn't end the the story because you've also got to reform it in a way that actually fixes something instead of makes it worse. Mm -hmm. That tends to be a problem with Congress as well. So uh, we talked about this last time uh, you were on the show. Um, you know, uh, one of the kind of heuristics that people use sometimes for for maybe how not to do this is, you know, like the Benghazi hearings, you know, and, and then people say, how do we prevent this from being another Benghazi? And I guess I'll remove that example. We'll just say, how do we make this real? Um, the creation of the committee, there were some things in its premise. You made sure it was well funded and everything. Um, it looks like there's the right members on it. If you and Congressman Massey are on it, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied there. They won't get um, anything by you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll ask some hard questions. But, but what needs to happen now to make this committee real? Um, it can't go chase little stories. It's not a question of... Uh, uh, going to find some individual, some hapless lowest learner who will uh, take the Fifth Amendment. That's really not the point. We've got to conceive of it broadly enough and uh, and, and and get after things. I, I personally think we must fully exercise the funding and staffing uh, authority that's been given to the committee. The, the, the deal that we made is that it would have uh, all the funding and staffing of the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, and what, 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 tell me about that order of magnitude. I, 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 I don't know, except mm-hmm. I, I think, in fact, I know that the, the church committee was funded with the equivalent of about four and a half million dollars in 1975. And so if you inflation adjusted what they did then, it'd be about four and a half million. And they hired 137, 135 staff. Uh, that kind of gives you an idea of scale. I don't think the staff for the J6 committee was as big, but I think it's like on the order of 80 or 90 or something mm-hmm. like that. I imagine the money was much, much bigger. <laughs> yeah, look, the look way pretty they well funded. Money, <laughs> the way they burn money. I don't want to burn money on, on a Hollywood producer to, yeah. to do make something for TV. What I want to do, and you know we're going to have to struggle with the stonewall out of uh, every uh, administrative agency. Hasn't the DOJ already said as much? Certainly. Absolutely. They've said, uh, you know, according to their precedent, uh, they don't believe that they uh, can provide anything concerning ongoing inf- investigations. I asked about the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot in a, in a, in a judiciary committee hearing um, last year and was told, uh, that's an ongoing investigation. We can't comment. <laughs> in, in other words, I, but and so and there's there are bridges to be crossed here. I've got in my mind for some later time when there's Republican control of both branches of Congress and the presidency, a means to fix this dance that goes on between Congress and the administration. And I, you know, I think some people up here think, well, maybe sometime we'll have an administration, and we don't, we really don't want to uh, make sure. Every, 
I think there's too much secrecy in Washington. I think too much stuff is is mm-hmm. concealed. I think these haughty, uh, all-powerful bureaucratic agencies uh, believe they dictate how American mm-hmm. society runs, and they want to keep it just like that. I believe we need to open it up. Yeah, they draw their prestige from it. You know, I mean, the overclassification is an issue that's talked about all the time. You know, everyone wants to be the guy who has access to top secret information. It turns out, you know, what soda machine is in the FBI's top secret information? So it's like, <laughs> that's it's right. not. It's, sorry, like find a different way of uh, of you know going to bed at night and convincing your wife that you're all great. Like you can't <laughs> use this system to do that. Anyway, cloak and dagger. I yeah. think that's right. It's, yeah. It is. There's a. It does. It gives people a sense of their importance, perhaps. But you can see, I mean, frankly, I will see what happens with all the classification stuff. But, you know, the Mike Pence, that story just came out today. They've, he's found some classified documents at home. Biden keeps finding them in the back of yeah. his Corvette or whatever. <laughs> but but I, I think that probably is an indicator that, that we'll see. But I don't I, my guess is that there's not crucial earth shattering secrets that are in those documents that they throw in a file box somewhere. I think it's just that there tends to be this. You know, the, the people who are exercising bureaucratic power love to do so in, in the dark of night without uh, without the glare. They don't want the accountability. Uh, and as soon as they're prepared to go put their name on a ballot and get elected, I'd be glad for them to exercise authority. But I don't really want them to be an unaccountable source of power all on their own. What's on the table in terms of, um, you know, consequences for, for these kinds of actions that have been going on? Um, the last couple of years, I think, you know, the narrative that I've been seeing so far is it's like, you know, Congressman Bishop is out for revenge or like this committee <laughs> well, is out for revenge. But but, you know, really, like what what proactively is on the table in terms of, you know, you're talking about future administrations. Um, and I think this is definitely the right direction to go. But like what's on the table in terms of things that you could actually change, you know, both. Republicans being out of the executive branch, but also what could be possible in the future? Well, I I think it's a good question. And I will tell you, I believe Republican voters who would support what I'm doing probably are of two very different minds, mindsets on this. There are some who are damn sick and tired of nobody paying a price. Um, The the real way to be honest with them, though, is to say Congress is not the mechanism to cause somebody to pay a price. That's an executive function. It's in the FBI. I don't control the FBI mm-hmm. and its prosecutorial decisions at this point. It'd be good for a future American president to see to it that we follow through in a way. But others have said, and, and some have said, some of the people I'm in, and, and, and frankly, I invite people to be in touch who've, who've got insights because I don't have any any corner on the insights about what we ought to look at. But some of these guys, I call them the Russiagate corner of the Internet, these guys who figured <laughs> out who Igor Danchenko was and all these things. These guys are brilliant, and, I, and I've followed a number of them, and I've corresponded with some of them. And and ha- happens to be the case that two who've been most voluble in having things to say have both independently said the same thing, that – the first thing you should do is grant immunity to every witness. Now, I don't know if I if I want to completely go there, but their point is you need to find out what's happening yeah. mm-hmm. rather than figure out and then, then sort of uh, uh, it's not really about naming and shaming people as much as it is. Well, it is about naming and shaming these big agencies mm-hmm. and what they've and the power that they've purported to exercise. You want to let the Mer- American people see fully what it looks like when the fundamental relationship between people and government that this country was founded on in its constitution is upended. 
That's what mm-hmm. we're looking at. Mm-hmm. The people, the government is subservient to the people in the United States of America, and these the and the bureaucrats, particularly the ones that, as you say, are in the cloak and dagger, really interesting intel and <laughs> and uh, law enforcement and the Department of Justice. <laughs> um, they uh, they they have a very different attitude about yeah. who's the boss, yeah. and uh, and well, they may prevail. I don't know. But the last best chance for this to be rectified is to have people of courage in the Congress who will not mm-hmm. accept no for an answer and intend gets the information and shows it to the American people. And then we see what the reforms are from that point forward. There are reforms to be had. I think people talk about the January 6th. I think our pretrial detention statute needs to be revisited. It's, it's entirely too broad. It can have a range of of uh, abuse abusive outcomes um i think that uh i think we need to look at the attorney general's guidelines for undercover operations and see if those need to be codified and need to be controlled in some way i think the fbi itself may need to be changed its counterintelligence function may need to be separated out and sent to another agency uh it may need i think it needs to be decentralized where power is not decision making is not concentrated in the headquarters but it is returned frankly to a, an earlier version of the fbi where the special agent in charge of the decentralized FBI field offices made more decisions. I think less needs to happen in the Washington and and uh, and uh, Southern District of New York field offices, and uh, things need to be moved elsewhere in the country. So I think I do have I'm full of ideas about what we might ultimately do to reform, <laughs> yeah. but I think that we need to all learn from the revelations that come out in this investigation, and I just think having an ambitious effort to un- uh, undertake an ambitious effort. That means business because we believe in it is the key to avoiding discrediting ourselves in the way that you described as possible. And I do think that's right. If we don't, if we go in with an artificial effort, um, uh, made for TV show trial, kind of a Benghazi hearing approach by, that I don't think was really believed in. Remember the comment that Kevin McCarthy oh, yeah. <laughs> about it? And Lost fact, him the speaker once. <laughs> right. And you can think about the comments that that uh, Trey Gowdy made yeah. as he was leaving Congress. I, I will never forget that. I don't remember them precisely, but I remember them in general. I just have a different view about it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I came up here for, for real substantive reasons. Mm-hmm. I intend to accomplish them. I intend to exert the will to see to it that we get there. And uh, I'm just one guy, but they're not getting my voting card and they're not shutting me up. Um, the only way they can do that is by, you know, sending me home or, or do something worse. <laughs> Voters didn't seem very interested in doing that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, committee's going to have limited resources. You all have limited resources. So, so there obviously has to be some, uh, you know, curating of, 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 of what you guys are going to focus on. And, you know, the, the other, you know, shiny object, focusing too much on shiny objects is mm-hmm. going to be one risk. And then the other risk I think potentially is being overbroad and not discovering novel information either. True. So, so walk me through what's the, 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 maybe the A, A minus and B plus tiers, you know, the, the top areas of focus that you guys are particularly interested in what questions are you looking to answer uh with this committee's work over the next two years so i would say it's too early to say for sure mm-hmm. um i've had a lot of conversations with jordan mm-hmm. uh, i've done a good bit of work myself staff and i are working on sort of developing our own independent roadmap um i will you know i'm trying to think what what is at the top of that list that, that list is very long and it's going to have to be whittled and refined as you say um, my own view is that uh, the thing that looms largest as I sit here 
uh, and I've already made reference to it, is uh, the degree to which um, sort of a metastasizing Department of Justice and FBI have uh, seen it seen fit to intrude upon our public discourse and our election management. I don't think CISA, the cyber security thing in the Department of Homeland Security, uh, and the FBI have have license to go regulate our speech and our discussion with each other. Maybe that's a question of recency coming out in the Twitter files, but when you consider the breadth and scope of public discourse through mm-hmm. social media and the notion that FBI is actually engaging mm-hmm. on a regular basis to decide to take down this yeah. comment and that comment that aren't illegal, mm-hmm. they're First Amendment-protected comments. As far as And, and it's, it's become clear they're not foreign inspired mm-hmm. they've they've used that excuse with the hunter biden laptop there's yeah. russian disinformation uh, they've just decided they're going to take it down think about the covid the public health uh, aspect of that mm-hmm. the degree to which they decided that certain that there's wrong think this is 1984 this is george orwell kind of stuff and it's actually happening mm-hmm. by by dint of i mentioned fbi doj but the entire public health establishment the, the layer to this that that i find interesting is if you had given me uh, a choice of which which files to get you know last year it's like you know where, where do you suspect the most malfeasance is happening i don't think i would have i said i would have said i don't think i would have said twitter i think i would have said like maybe i want to see what the google files are maybe i want to see what the facebook files are uh maybe i want to see what the cloudflare files are you guys will have an opportunity to see because you have the access to this side of the ledger now not all those companies can be taken over by a patriot like elon musk you'll be able to send you know, what Google can do to public discourse is more sinister and expansive than what Twitter can. I think that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah, Twitter's a, a peon, yeah. really, in the in the grand picture. Maybe the thing about the Twitter files that Elon Musk has disclosed, it is recency. And it's just something that's happened. Mm-hmm. But it, it is uh, – you actually have the, the specifics and the disclosures and what they represent is, to me, if you're open-minded to it, is shocking. And it helps cement the contemplation of what you would find if you got into Google and Facebook and the, at the scale that they represent, especially mm-hmm. Google, mm-hmm. and how and how much how widely is our entire social fabric being manipulated uh, and our thoughts ma- massaged and managed? So your so your mind immediately runs to you know globalist kind of uh, thinking and world economic forum and the ability of a handful of people in the most un- it's funny this is you know to the extent they're associated with the left the left which constantly uh preaches about uh, saving our democracy or, or the threats to our democracy and and um and that kind of machination that kind of massive government power uh you know ultimately brings every human being under thumb i i don't i think the things that we shouldn't get bogged down in necessarily or would, would be candidates for my second rank in terms of listing things to do is I'm not really I don't really know the spending all that much time about the FBI raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound was justified or whether Biden uh, you know disclosed his uh, problem with classified classified documents before mm-hmm. the election in time some of those things seem to me inside ball the thing I'm concerned about is how does how 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 are the people of the United States 
finding their choices and their destiny manipulated by the government power of a government that's supposed to serve them. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting to think about, right? Like, probably less than five percent of Americans use Twitter on a regular basis, right. and if you think that that, you know, the the <laughs> the misinformation, if you will, that they were spreading, <laughs> you know, if you think that influenced elections, how much more so for, you know, companies like Google, which has like 90 percent market share in the United States. I mean, theoretically, like you could be looking at a drastically different country, even from, you know, four years ago. Absolutely. Um, true. Based on that information. I think that's right. And then actually, so we've contemplated the reach of maybe the, a lot of the tech companies. What about all media? Mm-hmm. What about the media yeah. corporations? There's been a lot of concentration of power in there and, and mergers and so forth. Are, you know, I, it, 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 remember when the Bush administration was trying to keep the New York Times from publishing the details of the call uh, intercept uh, uh, regime that was going on? Well, I mean, that's the thing is they've gotten it now into far more pedestrian subject. That at least had a national security. I don't think it should have been kept from the American people either, but at least it had a national security angle. We're talking about, you know, whether you believe, what do you believe is the origin of the COVID vaccine? And, and, and you know, the entire massive and metastasizing CDC and NIH, the, uh, the, the organs of public health, yeah, all reach out to say what can be believed at one point. What what you're going to be punished, and and that that filters through all sorts. Not just uh, certainly not just Twitter. Certainly not just Google and uh, searches on the internet. And mm-hmm. but 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 in every every news article you read because of the decisions that are made and that and are manipulated by uh, the involvement of the betters or the special cognoscenti from washington it's crazy that's got it that's i mean i wouldn't say i'm pollyanna about fixing these things yeah but i do think if you you might as well start talking about the scope of the real problem yeah and then when you're doing that maybe somebody will dismiss you as a crackpot or conspiracy (laughs) theorist i'm sure that's what that's what the fbi said about twitter right yeah said that we were just engaged with our community partners (laughs) and we regret that 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 is that that is the bread conspiracy theories that's when you that look if they're so far gone that they don't recognize or that they they believe that that statement should pass muster that that depicts what we are up against yeah russia they, they didn't even have the the uh the self-awareness to to recognize man we've overstepped or something or try to tamp it down they were just contemptuous of the idea that all that that has been disclosed yeah it's just been like russian russian disinformation is defined as anything that i don't like <laughs> you know 100 yeah um the final element of of i think uh, what's going to occupy a, a lot of your time this congress uh congressman is uh even selected to be the chair of the subcommittee uh, on oversight at the um uh, homeland security committee under uh chairman mark green um Tell us a little bit about um, what matters to you there. Obviously, we've got a giant crisis at the border, and that's Alejandro Mayorkas is doing. Um, but I think there's there's a bunch of things that you're very interested in focusing on there. What walk us through what what what's motivating you to be involved in that fight in particular? Well, there are, and I, you know, another uh, element of the security state Department of Homeland Security. I think that's very very much so. And in fact, the disinformation governance board was it was, was the there, yeah. it was the concept of of. Uh, 
I started to say a bad word, not, not, <laughs> not, not, a, not a curse word, but just an, 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 an insult to the people that are over there. But but bad, people decided to do that. It was an unbelievable bad decision. Um, look, for, first and foremost, I think um, Chairman Green will be concerned about, and I'll be helping him with uh, oversight relating to the uh, management of the United States border. And so you, last month, 253,000, I believe this is the number, of uh of encounters of illegals crossing the border uh you know that number has grown and grown and grown that was the largest number in a month in history and it, it, the the impacts on american the fabric of american society of uncontrolled uh entries which is what we effectively have uh in those kind of quantities is it no i'm i don't know why anybody would bother to deny that that's going to be um destructive to american society in in short order so i, I think that the focus is on secretary alejandro mayorkas uh he has been uh you talk about how contemptuous and and brazen the fbi was in the statement i just made reference to well every appearance i've ever seen of mayorkas in front of congress has been that and worse so I think there's a reckoning coming for Mayorkas. I think the question of whether he should continue to serve is certainly on the table, and I anticipate that oversight uh, subcommittee will be looking in deeply into that. Is that a shiny uh, object, impeaching Mayorkas? Um, Do you worry per, it might become one? Yeah, I think it's conceivable. I mean, I, it's at least something to be concerned about. I do think that uh, there are indications of it that it's highly warranted. Mm-hmm. I think there is uh, to the border situation a um it has its own significance that and the and and the administration like it, it does have more discretion and uh and uh and uh, to to figure out how to proceed in terms of operating the border than i think is appropriately conferred well that really exists at the fbi in terms of in, uh, enforcing criminal law and the like um and so there's a special responsibility there Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that so, you know, many I think many have said that some people want to impeach the president and that you can do impeachments forever. I don't think you ought to get in, get out of control. But I think there have to be real answers about how the border has been managed mm-hmm. because it's been they've surrendered the United States border. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe some people believe that if you did that for a while, it would slacken. Um, it is not slackening. Yeah. And so. It longer goes, the bigger question that pretends. So I don't. I think it's. It may have some elements of a shiny object, but I think it's. A, that's certainly going to be a focus, and I think you've got to do something to restore the enforcement of American uh, immigration law. Um, I think uh, beyond that, uh, I know we've got some serious issues, uh, frankly, at TSA and the, its success. I'm concerned about CISA, uh, the role that CISA played. Um, in uh, in the election uh, past, and and it, it, I think it's also a situation where there's sort of an as- uh, assuming authority that's not necessarily been conferred. Um, I'm sure there are a number of things that Mark Green will want to get at, and we've sort of got time to get together, put our heads together on that. But those are the kind of the highlights from my perspective. 
Tell me about TSA a little bit. You had a post um, a few days ago uh, talking about this this leak of 1.5 million, um, uh, you know, people on the no fly list. Um, right. I mean, it seems like this perfect combination of so many different issues. I mean, incompetence, malice, you know, secret tribunals that decide the fate of all Americans. It seems like right up your alley. What would you make of that story? Well, I think it is, and and you know, I think uh, to the to the. Um, the caution you've you've uh, offered i'm not sure that anything's a shiny object so we'll so we'll see how to proceed as we learn more about it i think we've got to ask about it a million and a half names on it i'm curious how many are u.s persons i'm curious why that was on an on on a, on a uh a server that somebody could find they didn't have to hack as i understand it i mean mm-hmm. it was an unprotected server i think it was a no fly list.txt yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but 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 if yeah. that's the case it also begs the question if this is and i don't know what the airline was i didn't don't remember recognizing the name so i assume it's a smaller airline um why is that list is that list just dumped on airlines i mean it, it uh one would think it would be more like the you know the NICS system in in gun purchases where there's a of some database that's in on a federal computer that someone can authenticate to and inquire and and uh, um, search perhaps, but I'm surprised that a million and a half names are dropped on every airline. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and indeed, it does. You know, once more detail, if more detail emerges, or we find, we can discover more detail about who's on the no-fly list. I've asked some questions before in confidential briefings about the no-fly list and really haven't been able to get much information. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that that, uh, you know, it's funny. We, we do live in interesting times, and you get some new revelation uh, every day. I don't know that any of us expected the no-fly list would drop out of uh, mm-hmm. uh, the cyberspace into uh, into our laps. But it does, it does uh, beg the question why DHS has allowed that to occur. So there's going to be plenty for you to do in the the new Congress, and so we should probably let you go at some point. But before we do, um, is there anything else that you think um, people should be paying close attention to this Congress? Um, uh, you know, it's it's so easy for people to get complacent once uh, they think they've got power, and I think your message is generally uh, never be complacent. What 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 should people be vigilant about and paying attention to um, uh, for these next two years? You know, I do think. Um the experience we've had with the way in which we approached the inception of this Congress, the questions that were asked about the election of the speaker, the result that we've obtained, which I, for the reasons I've argued, make us likely to be a better and more functional Republican majority. I think we ought to retain some of the lessons of that, mm-hmm. which is, and, and among Republican voters, uh, I want them to hold us accountable. Mm. I, I want them to uh, to. Uh, I'm amazed how much they keep up, and they do. And so I've, I'm pleased by that. But um, I think they ought to. Uh, you know, they, I think that they know we're in divided government. They know we're not going to be able to get everything that we want. But you know, somebody wins every negotiation. And my experience or my, my observation has been that Republicans are habituated to being obliterated in, in, <laughs> in negotiations across the party divide. And yeah. there's no, there's not really a good reason for that. Yeah. Why, why would I, Joe Biden says he's not going to negotiate over the debt ceiling? Really? <laughs> I think he is going to negotiate over the debt ceiling. Uh, but I think the, it, it what seems most 
rare, and I said this at the American Conservative, we were there together that evening, that um, it, it really, you know, sometimes a little bit of courage works out marvelously well. Mm-hmm. I don't think that means being reckless or foolhardy. But my goodness, if you look around today at, at the state of the United States and the world, isn't it time for a little bit of courage? Again, as I said before, and when I appear with you guys before, it's not a question of the soldiers who are being who who, who may die and and as they uh, display courage to save the country, but just people who are politicians who have nothing to do other than run run another election down the road, and they may lose that. But maybe a little bit of courage would leave leave the nation in a better place. I hope so, and uh, and I encourage it on the part of my fellow members of the Republican Conference and to Republican voters. I say. You ought to expect it. And you ought to demand it. Well, Congressman, we thank you for uh, doing everything you did over these past few months and really in your entire time in politics. Um, people should go and listen to the previous episode to hear how you've been, you know, fighting corporate and state and cultural power for, you know, the last decade, it seems like. Um, thank you for, for spending some time talking to us about all of this uh, for the season premiere here. And thank you for everything you do. Great to be with you, Sarah. Nick, great to be with you guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly had the best time imaginable taping it. Be sure to follow everything Congressman Bishop is doing. If you follow him on social media, unfortunately, you're going to be one of many. His uh, Twitter following is like multiplied by seven over the course of the last just few months alone. He had this ma- massive threat about the overs- the um, omnibus package and then everything he was doing as part of the 20s. So he's uh, he's really making moves out there. Be sure to share the clips that come out of this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at at ammoment.org. Be sure to check out the backlog of this podcast at americanmoment.org. Also keep an eye out. There are a bunch of new programs live um, or will be live very shortly here. Our Fellowship for American Statecraft, Foundations of American Statecraft, a credentialing program on foreign policy, so much more. Uh, Keep an eye on the website. There's plenty there. Sign up for the mailing list. And in general, keep up with everything that we're doing. We're getting close to our two years of existing. This is episode 91 of the podcast. Be sure to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, subscribe on YouTube. Look at our happy mugs. You know, we tape with these freaking 4K cameras and actually make an effort to get our bums in the chair to uh, tape every uh, every episode of this. Uh, I don't say we always I don't say we always look nice. But well, speak for yourself. I have a, a nice haircut. I'm wearing a coat and tie. Um, you know, I actually try. I'm like, yeah. yeah. Um, he's got a beard and everything too. That's why you got to watch on 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 YouTube. You could make fun of him for um, you know trying to uh, look like a Viking. Uh, it's it's going to be a fun year here at American Moment. We are raring to go. Uh, we've been incredibly busy already, and we're just incredibly grateful to all of you for listening as always and making this a podcast that people want to be on and want to listen to. We'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. 